Okay, Regeroo, ready to go? Yeah, so am I. <laughs> All right, what do you say? Put this one in the books here. All right, sounds good. I like where the levels are. Keep them there. That's your job. Make sure that uh, the instrument sounds as good as it can. Okay? Uh, I'll give you the three S's. I'll give you the countdown. You give me the music, and I will do my best to give you one heck of a podcast. How's that? Okay. Sounds like a good deal. It's good on my end. How about yours? Thumbs up? Good. Ah, the submarine sandwich. Oh, a Jersey. Oh, Jersey Mike's. Yeah. Oh, look at you. Were you seduced by the uh, Danny DeVito commercials? Yeah, they've been advertising quite a bit. How is it? Oh, thumbs up. Very good. I might have to try the Jersey Mike's. I think I had one several years ago when it first opened here in the Chicago area. They look good on TV. I'll have to try one. Jersey Mike's. What'd you get, Italian? Yeah, you got to love the Italian sub. All right, here we go. <laughs> I don't know why I'm hungry, but I am. Okay, here we go. Uh, put it in the books. Episode 352, 352. Star, smile, strong. Three, two, one. Hey, it's Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain Podtastic. And welcome to another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. We are there. Where else would we be? Don't forget, if you listen to this podcast, you're also signed up in the Elton Jim Army. It's your job to get out there and invade the Internet and make sure that your friends and your family and everybody that you know knows about and becomes regular listens to Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. We are ready to invade and dominate the internet. Can you believe it's been almost it's almost a year now since Russia invaded Ukraine? Anyway, if you like what you hear, don't forget you go to WGNRadio.com and you Go to the podcast section, and then you hit the prompt for this podcast, and lo and behold, you will find podcast upon podcast upon podcast. Just keep scrolling down, scrolling down. I've done 351, so welcome to 352. What I wanted to talk about today was uh, is something that um, popped up in the news a couple of weeks ago that caught me by surprise, but immediately endeared me and had me feeling waves of respect. And in today's world... That's not easy to do. 
things are, gosh, I'll tell you, it's been a rough, it's been a rough century so far, hasn't it? Here we are, 20, we are going on 23 years in to the 21st century, into the 2000s century. For those of you who are young enough, can you believe it's been 23 years since Y2K and we went from 1999 to 2000? It's been 23 years since that New Year's Eve, which which was so cool. And everybody was both celebrating as well as pensive because we didn't know if all our computers were going to explode. We didn't know if planes were going to fall out of the ground. We didn't know if the entire electrical grid of the country was going to stop. We didn't know what was going to happen because of y2k and if you don't know what y2k is three two one google it a great many of us lived through the fear of y2k but it's been 23 years and i have to say um it's been a hell of a of a we're almost at the at a quarter of the century already that's a fast quarter of a century. <laughs> I hope to be around when we are at the halfway point of the century. I certainly hope so. And uh, and wow, I can only imagine what things are going to be like in the next 25 years or so. But we are almost at the 25-year mark, one-fourth. And it's been, it's been a rough ride, folks. I don't know about you. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, hopefully you've had things in your life that are that have been uh, fun and interesting. I, I told my godson about 25 years ago. <laughs> well, no, less than that. I would say maybe 15 years ago. Yeah, probably about 15, 16, 17 years ago. He's what now? Uh, 38, right? 37. He'll be 38 this year. And I think I may have told him when he was about maybe 25. So, yeah, maybe 10, 13 years or so. But I could see what was, I could, I was just, you know, I, I, I do pride myself on being a keen observer and kind of looking at the present and kind of hope and extrapolating sometimes and just seeing what the possibilities are. And I was... I was not seeing a lot of positivity going on, and I didn't mean to be a Debbie Downer by any means, and and I don't. As I said to you many times, I am a, I am a cautious optimist. I am an optimist at heart. I joke with my wife. You know, there's that phrase about uh, looking at the glass half full and half empty. And yes, I am very cynical. Hey, look, I, 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 I you know, I'm a member of the media. I was, a, I was a reporter. Uh, I was a newspaper reporter uh, you know, and, a, and a writer the first uh, 10 years or so of my career. So, you know, you're, 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 you're taught and trained to be cynical. You're taught and trained to, to ask questions and, and not believe anything. And that can be sometimes hard on your personality. And it could be hard unless you hang around. That's why a lot of reporters just hang around with each other because um, – they're used to this of having that little cynical side. The average person goes, "Wow, lighten up," you know. But when you sit around 
with a group of reporters, you're all kind of in that that same questioning, cynical, you know, uh, you know, little eyebrow raise on everything. You don't take anything at face value. Uh, because if you've been a member of the media and you've dealt with public officials and things like that, you know that a lot of them are not telling the truth. And you may have, maybe you have believed some people that have burned you and you just learn to get cynical and you learn to ask more questions than the average person. And the average person doesn't understand that. So it, it can be difficult sometimes to forge uh, relationships and friendships with people who are not in the media at times, um, because that becomes your nature. Even though I've been out of that business on a regular basis uh, for for a while, it still stays with you. And it was kind of what I was in my early in my early career and early life was kind of being trained in. So a lot of those things that we learn when we're younger stay with us. I I I, I try not to be cynical, but at the same time, so I always joke. Oh, I joke with my wife. Uh, Oh, you know, I'm I'm always a half full. I'm a glass half full person, and she kind of laughs, and that's part of my sarcastic uh, sense of humor, which is also a part of that cynical kind of reporter side of me that probably never will completely go away. But I but I really am. I do believe at, at my core. I I do strive and I and I try for positive things. But I am always cautious and and aware. Of, of possible pitfalls and prepared for them. And a lot of people go into things uh, without that and they wind up, sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't, they, 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 they crash hard because they weren't, they weren't looking or, put, or planning for anything negative to happen. I'm not looking for anything negative to happen, but I certainly plan diligently so that things I, I, I will go smoothly. I, I, I try to predict where the possible pitfalls can happen and guard against them. And uh, so I remember several years ago just observing the world in general. Um, and this was long before Donald Trump. Don't Don't worry about that. This was... This was during the Bush administration. This was, you know, George, uh, you know, right at the beginning of this century. You know, he was president for eight years, uh, you know, and then uh, Obama came in. But even in the, in the Bush years and in the in Obama years, I, I, was, I was very skeptical. I was seeing things emerging. We weren't, we were... They weren't taking hold yet, but they were emerging. You know, we were seeing a lot of, I mean, my gosh, you know, these school shootings are, are just getting, they're getting to be commonplace, and that's so sad and so scary. And um, I think next week or so, I'm going to start to talk about, um, in a few weeks in a row, I'll tell you about my recent vacation. I just had My wife and I had an amazing vacation. Uh, I know I say amazing a lot. I'm sorry. Fascinating. How's that? I don't know about life changing, but certainly life affirming in a way. And 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 it, and once in a lifetime kind of trip to Israel and Egypt, trip to the Middle East. And I'll tell you about that uh, in more detail in, in the coming weeks. But um, but I always try to to 
look ahead with positivity, but with, with caution as well. And, and as I said, I, I told my, my godson, you know, a good 15 years ago or so to, you know, do what you can within the boundaries of your life and of what you can control. Find ways to, uh, you know, uh, you know, achieve your goals, uh, you know, follow your passions, have fun, do things that you want to do, find ways to enjoy your life within what you can control in that small bubble of your own life because the outside world is not going to be giving you a lot of positivity. I really felt that. I, I couldn't, and I, don't get me wrong, I wasn't Nostradamus, Nostradamus, if you will, with a T-U-R, as in Toronto, Nostradamus. I was not being Nostradamus. Uh, I wasn't, uh, I, I didn't predict COVID. I didn't predict high inflation. I didn't predict, uh, you know, earthquakes or or things like that. I'm not saying that, but I did see where we, I did, I just did observe that where the, where the, where the, the psyche of the world was going and certainly this country. And I wasn't too far off. So I said, I didn't, I, 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 I couldn't, I wasn't looking to, um, to predict the future, but I was, I was sort of, looking at where things were going and we were not moving in a, in, a, in a positive direction as much as we tried to pretend we were. We really weren't. Whatever, whatever, whatever situation we're in today in the world, the seeds of this were planted a long time ago and it, 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 it takes long for that to, um, to come to fruition. And I still believe that we have never fully recovered from 9-11. And that was the first year of this century. And I still don't think America has ever recovered from that. We've moved on. Um, but um, internally, I don't think we've ever recovered from that. The vulnerability and the fear that it exposed. And I, don't, and I think the rest of the world looked at us in a different way. For the same reason with a new vulnerability and they may have they may have respected our ability to rally uh and 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 come back from that but i don't know if we fully have come back from that really and it also did to our the rest of the world both our allies and our enemies reveal uh, a, a vulnerability that they maybe never suspected we had and that may have become the impetus for their plans to get more aggressive on the world stage and um, and begin to counter us and take us on when in previous decades they might not have. There's a diff. There's a, there's there's a our country in the last twenty five years has completely changed. We are. We are really, we, you know, that, that division started at the beginning of 2000, if you think about it. And, you know, once again, 
just so you know. This is not what I planned on talking about at all for today's podcast. And I will get to the – somehow you will find me getting there. I'm even having to, I'm having to wonder how I'm going to get to my main topic and where I started on this. But I think it's worth talking about. At least, and maybe it will lead me to where I'm going. I don't know how I started on this. I'm looking at my script here. Wink, wink. You know, and I, it, I don't see how. Boy, what did I? I told my. How did, I started talking about my godson and telling him to enjoy his own life. Maybe there's a connection there. Maybe there isn't. I don't know. I'll get there. Believe me. And I won't take too much longer. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I mean, it, you know, it just, it, it, it just seems like, uh, you know, that division from, from the, from the beginning of 2000, really with the election of 2000, I mean, if, let's not forget that election got into the hands of the Supreme court, there was no clear winner hanging chads. Remember that? I mean, we were talking about literally counting votes with little punch cards. And, you know, 25 years later or so, 23 years later, uh, our elections are still up in the air. Some people deny their validity. So have, have things really gotten much better than they were in 2000? But it got, it got so bad that the Supreme Court ultimately decided that. And so right from there, there was a division as to people that, you know, I mean, you couldn't get any closer than that election. And that, and so while George Bush won and Al Gore did something that I don't even think will ever be done again, he respectfully conceded even though he probably felt that he won. And if they did a recount, who knows? But that could have stretched on for months and months and would have put the country at a big disadvantage. And so you may like or hate Al Gore for a lot of different reasons. His his views on the environment and, and, and a bunch of things. But you have to, at the very least, you have to respect Al Gore for accepting his defeat and conceding and letting the country go on, whether that's good or bad, you know, who knows? It really, and when you think about that election, what would 2023 be like today if Al Gore would have won instead of George Bush? I don't think we would have had an an Iraqi war. We may have had 9-11, but we may not have because the Clinton administration was, was, was very cognizant of Osama bin Laden. And, and that may have continued into an Al Gore presidency. And so maybe, I mean, I don't know if we, you know, it's hard to tell even 20-some years later, did we fall asleep at the wheel and not keep an eye on Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden was a known threat, excuse me, a known threat and a known enemy to this country. And he he publicly said that he was going to, his goal was to, uh, you know, 
rid the world of the United States in so many words, right? A fatwa or whatever that was. So maybe under Al Gore administration, he would have been more in tune since he was the vice president and was being regularly briefed on Osama bin Laden and his possible threats and his possible danger to this country. So who's to tell whether that entire 9-11 could have been foiled? We don't know. But certainly, I don't think we would have had an, an, an Iraq war. That was a George Bush war, I think, trying to make up for his dad not finishing the job back in the early 90s with uh, Saddam Hussein. And who knows? Is After an Al Gore, would there have been a Barack Obama? Don't forget, Barack Obama was elected in response to George Bush. Who's to say? Perhaps after another, you know, two Democrats in a row, the country might have voted for a Republican, depending on how Al Gore would have done in one or two terms. The country always seems to uh, go back and forth, even if when they when they have a, a you know two terms of a, of one party, then they go to the other one. So if if Al Gore would have won in twenty in two thousand, and say he would have been reelected in twenty o four. In 2008, the country may have been tired of democratic rule and a Republican would have been nominated and not Barack Obama. And then that, and then without Barack Obama, there probably is no Donald Trump. I mean, it's, it, it, think of that, that all falls into place like that. So we could only imagine where we would be in 2023 if not for the hanging chads. And that election in 2000. But my point is that uh, since the turn of this century, uh, the outside world has really been a crazy and uh, unstable and divided and violent uh, first quarter of this century. And I think where I was going with this is, is to find, as I said to you, as I, the, the sage advice I gave my godson, Patrick, find ways to make your life, your own personal life and, and, and those around you fun because the outside world is going to be very chaotic and hectic. That I did have a sense of, and I think I was right on that. And I tried to fi- to follow my own advice on that, and I, I I I do do that, and that and part of that was this vacation I'm just talking about. I've always wanted to see the pyramids in Egypt, and um, and finally did. It took me many decades, but finally got there, and glad they're still there, <laughs> especially in that kind of troubled and chaotic part of the world. You never know. So I'm glad I got there, and I'm glad I saw what I wanted and needed to see. But this whole idea of looking uh, on the bright side of things, something happened this past couple of weeks that, uh, that really shook me. 
But at the same time, I was impressed and moved by it. And I and really felt a, a deep respect for, for a very difficult decision. And you say, wow, Jim, what the heck is this? I mean, this must sound like it's, it's really big stuff. Oh, my goodness. You know, respect and... And, uh, wow, I mean, you're sounding like this must be some some major thing. (laughs) Well, I guess it is, and maybe it isn't. It might be silly to some, but for me, it isn't. Uh, I have been, and if you've listened to me with any regularity, on the radio or here at the podcast here since May of 2016, we're getting close to that seven-year anniversary now. And... um, I've been a fan of Bruce Springsteen for a long time. And, and if you've listened to me, uh, you'll know that over the last couple of years, I've been a little disappointed. Now, there's no question that, you know, Elton John is a big, played a major part of my life since I was a little kid. But so is Bruce Springsteen. I don't maybe talk about him as much in terms of going to all these concerts and my nickname isn't, you know, Bruce Jim. You know, or Jimmy Springsteen, you know, <laughs> it's Elton Jim, right? So the Elton John thing, there's no question. It is, but 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 to be honest, Bruce has played a very big role in my life as well from when I was a little kid. I think I've talked about this. Even though I started to be a, an Elton fan when I was nine, I became a Bruce Springsteen fan when I was 11. Yeah. Bruce Springsteen's Born uh, to Run album was one of... My 12 Columbia House Record and Tape Club for a Penny albums for a penny. There used to be this Columbia Records uh, and Tape Club. The ad for it was in every magazine you ever got. And for a penny, you could join. You can get 12 albums. They would send you these 12 albums for a penny. And then you had to join the club for like three years and pay double the price of every album that came out. Back then, albums, vinyl albums, only cost about four ninety nine. But when you joined the Columbia House Record and Tape Club, you, you had to order at least X amount of albums in a year. And part of that, too, was there was an automatic album of the month that they chose for you based on the genre of music that you liked. And if you didn't send back this card that said, I don't want that, they automatically sent it to you. And I remember being a little kid and really having to, that's how I kind of learned responsibility. Like, oh my gosh, I've got to, uh, you know, I got to send that card back. I mean, albums, I mean, this was the mid 70s. Like I said, albums were $3.99, $4.99. And, and when this bill came, if you did buy an album from it, it was eight something. That was a lot of money. And I was a little kid. I had sort of asked my mom sheepishly, you know, yeah, well, that album club. I mean, I, well, and then I had to keep reminding. Well, I did get twelve albums for a penny. At the end of the day, they, you know, I, I quit it after every. I think everybody quit after three years, but they make their money back. But oh my gosh, was that a tempting offer? Especially when you're a little kid, twelve albums for a penny. I'll never forget when that box came in the mail. It was huge. I mean, a little eleven-year-old kid. I didn't get much mail, right? Who's sending me except for Christmas cards and birthday cards, maybe, right? All of a sudden, this giant, big 
cardboard box from Columbia Records, wherever the heck that was. I didn't even know what the hell that meant. And basically, it was a great way for Columbia House to promote their artists. It was a very smart deal. Uh, but everybody who joined it has the same thing to say about it. I don't know anybody who was happy as a member of the Columbia House uh, Record and Tape Club because you felt ripped off. You know, you got these 12 albums for a penny, and that was great. But this 8 to $9 an album for the next three years, and I don't remember how many albums you had to buy a year, if it was three or four, something like that. But as I said, they made their money back with the 12. Because don't forget, if you bought an album at the store for three ninety nine, it was costing Columbia House probably $1. So they really gave you those 12 albums for $12. And then they made you buy X amount of albums a year for two or three years at $9. So they, they made out pretty well. <laughs> but... Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run was one of the 12 albums for a penny that I got. And basically, I bought it, I chose it, because I had read so much about Bruce Springsteen. I had never heard Bruce Springsteen's music. I had heard of him because, as I said, I was was, uh, into music at a very young age. I was an Elton fan by nine, but I was buying... I was buying albums by the time I was about six or seven. I was buying, certainly I was buying 45s and K-Tel albums, and I was listening to you know Top 40. I mean, I was born and raised on Top 40 radio, on AM Top 40 radio. That's what was king. That's what made and broke artists uh, in, the, in the 60s and, and into the 70s was AM radio. AM Top 40 Radio here in Chicago was WLS, AM, and WCFL were the two big stations. And those were that's what I listened to, and that was that is how I learned about music early on. And then my t- my taste began to expand. But um, so I was I was a, 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 a an AT40, you know, listening to the Casey Kasem American Top 40 show and and listening to the WLS and getting the surveys every week about the top songs. I mean, that was my life. That was my, my day and night. And um, so I would read you know, music magazines and Rolling Stone and things like that. And so in 1975, when Born to Run came out, the album, it, there was amazing hype for Bruce Springsteen. Uh, you know, there was all this talk about being the savior of rock and roll. And, uh, you know, he was on the cover of Time and Newsweek magazine in the same week. Nobody had ever done that in, in, in the rock world. You have to understand, in 1975, rock and roll music was still, it was, it was beginning to, to become more of an accepted mainstream, but it was still looked at as a fad. I know that's hard to believe if you're younger, even if you're older and you weren't into music and you don't remember things, but... Rock and roll was popular, no question, but it wasn't the dominant music. If you watch television, the, the number one shows were Carol, Carol Burnett and, and all those variety shows, and, and on those shows, you still had people like Robert Goulet and, 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 and Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra. You know those that that type those people were still around, and they may have been in their 50s or so, but they were still dominating. 
Rock was still viewed as a as kind of a fringe, niche, trendy fad that young kids liked. But it was beginning to turn because by 1975, the baby boomer kids were now 25, 26, 27. They were in the workforce. They had uh, disposable income. And they were beginning to rise into jobs of responsibility and decision-making in many different areas, which began to steer the culture. So in 1975, I mean, it was a big deal. There was, don't forget, there was no internet, there was no anything like that. So these magazines like Time and Newsweek, they came out weekly. What was on the cover of Time and Newsweek for that week basically drove the, the discussion of news for the week. It was a big deal who was on the cover of Time and Newsweek. Now these magazines, they barely register with anybody, if at all. If they even exist, you know, you hear about the Time Person of the Year, but that's the only time you hear about Time Magazine. I've never, I don't even see it. I don't even know if it's out. You know, I don't even know if there's a hard copy of it anymore on newsstands. I don't even know where there's a newsstand, to be honest with you. And I was a guy that used to work in the magazine industry. I was a managing editor for, for, for a couple of magazines for about five years. And I don't even know if Time and Newsweek exist in a hard copy anymore. But in 1975, it was a big deal. And so when Bruce Springsteen gets on the cover of Time and Newsweek the same week, a relatively unknown, this was huge news. And it was creating, and, and he was always, uh, he was always considered a media hype because of that. There were some people that were very cynical. If you if you got into the mainstream, if you were in rock and roll and you get, became a mainstream kind of artist, they kind of turned your back on it because, as I said, there was this little kind of cool club, you know, of critics that wanted to keep it kind of sacred and 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 pure. Uh, but rock and roll sold its soul a long, long time ago. But it was a big deal. So I was reading about rock and I was reading about Bruce Springsteen in these music magazines, but I never heard his songs because uh, he he was not a top forty artist at all. If you listen to the Born to Run album, it, it, it is not uh, representative of the kind of music that was that was being played on AM radio, which dominated the music scene. Which made and break people. That you know, the song "Born to Run" and and Tenth Avenue Freezeout were the singles released from "Born in the U.S." or "Born to Run," but uh, those were not those were not hits. Those were not number one songs. Far from it. They're classics now, and certainly in his in his musical catalog. But they were not hits. He was the album did well, um, but it wasn't the runaway hit that everyone thought it was going to be. And so Bruce Springsteen was was really, uh, you know, considered kind of a media creation by many people. And then right after Born to Run, he got involved into a lawsuit that had him banned from recording. He couldn't record until this uh, this lawsuit was um, was either ruled on or settled, and that took like a year and a half. And so his next album, Darkness on the Edge of Town, didn't come out until 1978. It was three years after Born to Run. So he had a very uh, 
kind of up and down career early on in his in his uh, in his career. So I had never WLS and WCFL did not play Born to Run. Those were not taught, those did not sound like anything that was on the radio in 1975, at least AM radio. Now there were some progressive FM stations that were playing that kind of music, but they were far, far, far down on the radio dial in terms of popularity. They weren't strong even with their signals. I mean, WLS was a 50,000-watt radio station. So was WCFL. Now, those things were blasting around not only throughout Chicago, for instance, but throughout half the country. And these progressive rock stations were smaller, privately, independently owned, and they let the DJs play whatever they wanted, so they were kind of hip and cool, man. But they, they weren't the mainstream. Those were the top 40 stations. And uh, Bruce Springsteen did not get played on those. So I had never heard, I have read quite a bit of the savior of rock and roll and, and all these, these, this hyperbole and, and read about the fact that he was on the cover of rolling of, uh, you know, on the cover of Time and Newsweek on the same week. Nobody had ever done that and blah, blah, blah. But uh, I had never heard his music. So I was just curious because I was reading so much about him. People in the music business were very excited, but the Born in the Born to Run album, uh, when you listen to it, it was, it was. I mean, don't forget, by 1975, disco was beginning, and uh, you know, and here is Born to Run, which is basically a melding of, uh, you know, 50s rock with with, with, with like within in the vein of Buddy Holly, like she's the one. Born to Run, a big explosive kind of rock song with horns. You know that wasn't that wasn't like the songs that were on the radio in 1974 or 75. Like I Can Help by Billy Swan. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, there was a nod to um, to the rock and soul sound of the 60s there was a nod to as i said to the 50s kind of sounds there was a nod to the 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 phil specter wall of sound from the from the late 60s and there was talk about these 50s kind of icons about you know gangs and cool and leather jackets and um you know driving at night and you know, this was not the stuff of Top 40 Radio. So there was a lot of hype in the people that were into music. The critics, they saw Springsteen as the savior because he was touching on many of the icons of the early days of rock, and they liked that. But it was far from a mainstream uh, hit, no no individual song became a number one or even a top ten or even where close. The album sold well initially out of the hype, but it wasn't the album of the year by any means in 1975. But so Bruce Springsteen had a lot of hype. So I was reading a lot about Bruce Springsteen, but I'd never heard Bruce Springsteen. Because he wasn't played on WLS or WCFL. If they didn't play it, for the most part, I didn't hear it. If he wasn't on a KTEL album early on, I didn't hear it. That was my main source of music. 
WLS and WCFL and some KTEL albums. And Bruce Springsteen wasn't played on any of them, at least not here in Chicago. He did have a huge following on the, in the East Coast and still does because that's where he lived, you know, in the New Jersey area and has performed there quite a bit on the Eastern Coast. So he did have a cult following there when he still does. But it never fully grew to across the country in 1975. And really not even in 1978, same thing. When, when Darkness on the Edge of Town came out, it's a very dark album, thus the title. And by 78, when, when that came out, I mean, disco was in full bloom. Saturday Night Fever came out in 1977, around Christmas time. So by 1978, the, the, the Bee Gees were the dominant force in music. And in that, in disco and, and Saturday, Night, Saturday Night Fever and, and all the disco songs and, and everything else like that, and in the midst of that, you know, Bruce puts out another rock and roll album. It really wasn't until 1980 when the whole disco demolition and, and the disco versus rock thing exploded and rock became the victor, then the perfect timing was there. And that's when the river came out. The timing was perfect. And that's when Bruce really broke in the mainstream with Hungry Heart and the River album. But it was five years since Born to Run when he finally achieved the kind of success that his promise in 1975 uh, was first touted. So I've been a fan of Bruce Springsteen since 1975 because... I was only 11 because I I got that album, Born to Run, as one of my 12 for a penny from the Columbia Record and Tape Club. And I have to say that when I put it on, I, 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 I totally remember when that box came and I went through the different albums. I don't remember the other albums I bought, to be honest, or picked. But I do remember Born to Run because I was so interested to hear what was all this hype about. And I'll never forget it. You know, in, in, in the 70s, you know, album art, especially in the mid-70s, album art was a big deal. So albums were very colorful and there was illustrations or very intriguing, complex photos, Led Zeppelin albums, Houses of the Holy and Physical Graffiti where all these you know, kind of mystical album covers and Elton John's Captain Fantastic was this this big, you know, illustrated thing. And so all these albums were very colorful and, and they were they weren't psychedelic, but they were still leaning toward that. But it was a very visual, colorful. And here's Born to Run. Black and white. White cover with a black and white photo. And you open it up, and it's it's all white with more black and white photos. And there's this scruffy, skinny, little scrawny guy with earrings and a leather jacket, looking completely out of out of out of pace with what the times looked like at all. Two earrings. You look like like a gypsy. And uh, it was like, wow, what's this on the cover? You know, born born to run. There's then there's Clarence Clemens, 
big black guy with his saxophone and Bruce leaning on him. In fact, you didn't even realize who was the star. Bruce was, you know, Clarence is more um, prominent on the Born to Run cover than Bruce is. He's kind of leaning, looking sideways. Clarence is looking forward. So it's like, wow, what the heck is this? And then you open it up. More black and white photos, as I said, of this scruffy kind of street motorcycle guy, gang member. What is this guy? You know, beard, scrag, and not even a good beard. You know, a scraggly kind of patchy beard with you know earrings in both ears and leather jacket and just what the heck is this? And the words were in the were were printed too, the lyrics, which was very cool. But all but but in the age of this colorful, uh, you know, artistic and uh, you know, album covers. Here's a black and white album. It just didn't look. It didn't look like anything at all at the time. And then it didn't sound like anything at all. And even to my eleven year old ears. I it was the first time my my in my young life that that I was exposed to something that I wasn't sure what it was. None of my friends had heard of Bruce Springsteen. None of my friends were listening to this because once again it wasn't on the radio that we were all listening to. So it was the first time that I sort of was exposed to some kind of other music. And it did turn my ear, and it did draw me in. The visual of that album did draw me in. And then when I heard it from the first sound, the first notes of Thunder Road, it sounded like nothing I had heard ever before. Certainly nothing that I'd heard on AM radio at the time. And for the last two or three or four or five years I've been listening. Now, I admittedly, I did not become a Bruce Springsteen fanatic after that. I was still 11 years old, and I went right back to my WLS. But I knew that that stuck in my mind, and I listened to the album quite a bit. But then, as I said, he disappeared. And, you know, when you're a little kid, you have a very short attention span. He didn't put on another album for three years. He wasn't around for three years. I never thought he'd ever hear from Bruce Springsteen again. Many people thought, there he was. He's a flash in the pan, a media hype, and one one hit wonder if that. So he was kind of off my radar screen. But then three years later, in 1978, when I was a freshman in high school, my musical taste had certainly changed in those three years. Those were three big years from being kind of a little kid into a teenager. And my musical tastes were expanding because I had been listening to music for a long time anyway. So my musical tastes were were growing and expanding more than my friends were because they were not into music as much as I was and not into it as early as I was. So I was a little ahead of the curve with them. So my musical tastes started to change. So by 1978, when Darkness came out, I wasn't listening to disco. I wasn't listening to AM radio anymore. I was listening to FM radio and progressive rock stations and classic rock stations at the time. And I was hearing Bruce Springsteen music. I was hearing the new Darkness on the Edge of Town album. And that's when I was really converted. But I've been Bruce Springsteen fan since I was 11 years old. So that's a long time. That's several, several decades. I don't want to get into the specifics, but... <laughs> and I always considered, you know, because of Bruce's uh, music... 
and its personal kind of uh, bent, I, I, I did uh, get immersed in it. I saw him for the first time in 1980 when I was 16, and I have been to every tour he's done since then. I've seen him over 60 times. I mean, Elton, obviously, 211. But Bruce, 60, over 60 times, that's a lot. And I've traveled from coast to coast to see him and everywhere in between. I've never seen him um, outside of the United States, though. But I have seen him from sea to shining sea and and places in between. And um, so this week, or the last couple of weeks, something happened that really um, impressed me, shocked me, and validated some feelings that I've been having. I've said to you here on the podcast over the last couple of years that I've been a little disappointed and felt in many ways that Springsteen had become a hypocrite on a a variety of issues. There was always a mythology around him, and I've talked about that. And to his credit, he destroyed his own mythology when he did his autobiography a few years ago and then followed it up with his one-man show on Broadway, which I saw three times and were some of the best performances I've ever seen of him. So I gave him credit for that. But over the last couple of years, and I've talked about this on this podcast, he, he has disappointed me. Bruce Springsteen is a very flawed person. He's a great artist, great songwriter, one of the best performers in rock history, no question, but a flawed human being, and he admits it. His fans don't like to admit it. But for the first time, as I said about a year ago, for the first time, his fans have begun to question him. He made some very questionable decisions that cut to the heart of this kind of community that he had always talked about creating with his fans and this bond that they had. And I've been a part of that. And when you, there's, there's, there's kind of two Bruce Springsteens. There's the Bruce Springsteen in the, in the studio, and the albums are good, and some of them are excellent. There's no question about that. But the real conversion for most people comes after you see him perform. It, it, you cannot deny his, his talent and his ability uh, as a live performer. It is cult-like, and it's addictive, and I will admit that I have been addicted to Bruce Springsteen performances for the last 43 years. But that brings me to this year, 2023. I was disappointed when, after decades of not succumbing, he decided to do a TV commercial. He was offered millions of dollars over the last 40 years, and he always said no. And finally, he decided, getting older here, I guess, he decided to do a Jeep commercial. If you remember, it was last year's Super Bowl for Jeep. And it was one of the most highly anticipated commercials of the year. And it really wasn't all that 
great when you saw it. But it did mark a, a whole change in his viewpoint of not selling out or, or, or endorsing anything. But it was like, but hey, that's the way the music business and the entertainment world has moved. So while it was disappointing, it wasn't, it wasn't completely unexpected. He didn't lose that many points in my book. But what made me lose, what he did lose points was when the couple of days after the commercial aired during the Super Bowl last year in February, where he did lose some points was that it was revealed that in November, a few months before that, he was arrested for a DWI in New Jersey on his motor on his motorcycle, and it was just coming out two months later, two and a half months later that this even happened. And to this day, he has not fully come clean on it and told what happened and and what was going on. He's never come still to this day. And I talked about this. We never saw Bruce Springsteen's mugshot. We see other celebrities when they get arrested, especially for 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 being under the influence. We see their disheveled mugshots all the time on the internet, don't we? Bruce Springsteen was arrested, not just not just brought in. He was a, arrested, which means there's a mugshot of Bruce Springsteen somewhere that exists. Not only was the story never reported. By any media, not locally in New Jersey, not nationally, not internationally, but clearly it was covered up. There's no question about that. And that mugshot, we still have never seen it. So a lot of hypocrisy there. Certainly, I'm sure the reason that that Bruce never came clean about it was that he got a DUI, which is embarrassing and not good for his image. But then... He knew he was going to be endorsing a car commercial. And he was arrested for drunk driving. Not the best endorsement, is it? Is it, a good, is it good to have someone who endorsing a car who was just uh, you know, and I'm, I'm now I'm, I'm wrong. It was 2021, so I'm sorry about that. I'm saying it was 2022. It was 2021 when um, the Super Bowl with the commercial. But um, but why 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 was that covered up? Because he just put a new album out in October, and in November he was arrested. In October of 2020, he put a new album out. In November he was arrested, and obviously did not want the bad publicity. And the powers that be, the government, the media, everybody gave him a pass until somebody blew the whistle on it after the Super Bowl commercial in early 2021. And that was, to me, very hypocritical. And as I said before, he still has not admitted or talked about it in length as to what happened. So I was a little disappointed in that. But once again, his legions of fans defended him, thought it was cool. I don't think DUIs are cool, but, you know. And he got away with a $500 fine, I believe. And he never had to appear in court because of COVID. It was a Zoom 
court. So that was once again, not seen by anyone. And it was just quietly went away. But he went down several notches in my book. And I was, I was, I felt a little betrayed. But majority of his fans just let it go by as they had done all of his previous foibles, whether it was with his marriage back in the 80s where he was caught on a balcony in Rome having an affair with his then backup singer while he was married and other things. He is far from perfect as much as the media and his management have built him up to be and covered up many of his missteps. And his fans are so blind faith loyal to him that they've overlooked all that. As I said before, earlier last year, until his new tour was announced, and he went for something called dynamic pricing in which the best seats to his concerts have were up at sometimes up to $5,000 a seat. And he basically was playing not to the blue-collar, middle-class crowd that he always professed to be the hero of, but now at 73 he was going for broke. He has been the, mo- the, 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 the artist that has been uh, the most, um, you know, with, with, tickets to, with tickets being sold at secondary markets. I mean, there's no question. The amount of money that he's lost over the years to ticket brokers in the secondary market is he's the most, his tickets are, have brought in the most in the secondary market by far. And so I think at 73 years old, not knowing how many more tours he had left, and, and maybe you know the, the, all the members of the E Street Band are in their 70s and, and mid-60s now. He's 73 when this tour is over, which he's currently on now. He'll probably be close to 75. Will he continue to tour with the, with the E Street Band anymore? Maybe he hasn't said this is the last one, but maybe it is. Maybe he's told them, look. We're all getting old, and I'm going to be doing some other things, and I can't keep doing these three-hour shows anymore after a couple of years. And and so, you know what? We're going to make a killing, and we're going to. I'm going to give you guys. I'm going to set you guys up for the end for the rest of your life with a really good payday. You've been loyal, so we're going to charge all this money, and you're all going to make a nice a nice buck. And if we do tour again, great. But maybe we won't. You know, who, you know, when you get to be 75, there's no guarantees that anybody, they, you know, the East Street Band has already lost two key members, Danny Federici and Clarence Clemens. Some argue that it's really not the East Street Band anymore, especially after you lose Clarence Clemens. But it looks good on a ticket stub. It sells tickets. But when he did that, when he allowed this dynamic pricing, to take hold and charge several thousand dollars for single seats and not even VIP situations, but just a regular seat, one, two, three thousand, up to five thousand dollars at some point. 
many of his longtime fans finally saw through the mythology. And it was going to be interesting to see, were people going to buy tickets? Now, the tour started started uh, earlier this month in Tampa. I don't know if they've all been complete sellouts. And to be honest with you, which I always try to be, he doesn't have a Chicago date at this early part of the tour. He, he just announced one, in fact. They'll be playing Wrigley Field in August here in Chicago. But I'm not big on outdoor shows. I don't. The weather is always a factor. August is going to be really hot. The sound is okay. The sight lines aren't. You're, if you if you're not re, even when you're close, you're far. And yes, I've seen Elton outside, and you know I, I've they've been okay. But I I prefer indoor shows because unless you're sitting really close up, all you're doing is looking at video screens for the whole time. And it's usually hot and people are drunk and people aren't listening to the music. Those outdoor shows are just events. So I was very disappointed when he skipped Chicago for his initial arena tour that runs the first couple of months here of the year. So that was disappointing. The closest show he has to Chicago right now, before the summer, when he does play Wrigley Field, at least one show, and I'm sure he's going to add at least one or two more shows. So he'll probably be there, you know, at least two shows in Wrigley Field, if not more. Chicago's always been a good market for him. But the closest show, for me at least, is Milwaukee in March. And uh, I still do not have tickets to a Bruce Springsteen show, which if I was going to go to one, it would be in Milwaukee. And that's only a couple of weeks away, and I still don't have tickets. I still haven't decided whether I'm going to see Bruce Springsteen. And you may say, Jim, who cares? What's the big deal? But when when something like this has been a part of your the, the a, a huge part of your life for a, for more than a majority of your life, it is a big deal. But I am really in a quandary because I'm so disappointed about how he really betrayed his most loyal fans because his fans are so loyal to him and they follow him and some people go to 10 or 15 shows on a tour well they would have to i mean they'd have to pillage their 401ks at two or three thousand dollars a ticket to see who's gonna are you gonna spend thirty thousand dollars to see bruce springsteen i don't care how much you like him that's ridiculous so it was a huge betrayal and I thought, maybe I'm, am I being too, am I putting too much emphasis on this? Because, you know, everybody else is buying tickets and shows are supposedly are sold out, I guess. So I'm wondering, am I just trying to be, am I being too hard, hard you know, high, high grounded? I felt like, once again, it was a huge betrayal because Bruce said, well, I'm doing what my peers did. But as I said on this podcast, you know, several months ago, you can't have it both ways because your image was that you were not like everyone else. You were this unique specimen of rock and roll savior and the music was all that counted and it proved with this tour that that is not true. And he has come out and tried to explain it 
His 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 management's explanations have been out of touch and out of the realm of reality. Oh well, uh, it's not that much to pay for the greatest performer in the world. Yeah, it is. And his lame excuse is, "Well, I'm old, and I just, you know, I'm I'm I don't really know what's going." No, he is so meticulous. And always has been about every aspect of his career. When he first started to play big arenas coming out of small theaters, he was so worried about the sound and how people would hear it that at the sound check, he would go throughout the entire arena. And in every spot, all the different sections to hear what the sound sounded like. And when he went outdoors and then because of his fame grew, he did the same thing there. He's very meticulous about the lighting. He knows everything that's going on. But suddenly, now he's coming off like he's some doddering old man that, oh, well, I don't know. I just sort of told them to do what they can and let's do what everyone else. And then, well, I'm just an old guy. No, that, no, 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 no. That doesn't fly. That's BS. That's a cop-out. But I was saying to myself, well, geez, I wonder, am I being overly sensitive with my, this sense of betrayal? I haven't bought tickets to this concert yet. Am I really going to boycott Bruce Springsteen? Am I really ready to do that? You know, I just went to Los Angeles to see Elton in November, and one thing I did there was I went to the Grammy Museum in Los Angeles because they had a Bruce Springsteen exhibition. I'm still a fan of his music. No question. And of his artistry. And even of him in many ways. But I felt that this was a huge betrayal. It cut to the heart of everything he professed to be. Was this community and that he created with his fans and this bond. And we were all in it for the music and everything. And then he just went for the big salad. He just sold his his catalog for five hundred thousand for five hundred million dollars. Hugely overpriced. That was all hype. You know, Bob Dylan didn't get that. You know, some of the biggest names in rock didn't even come close to that. So he has benefited from being coddled and and covered up and and held in high esteem by the media and by his fans, and he's been able to take advantage of that and and be rewarded quite well for it. He just made $500 million. He doesn't need to make that much off of his fans for this tour. It's a betrayal. It's a hypocrisy. And I still haven't bought tickets yet. But what was most impressive to me, and here's my main point. (laughs) Told you I'd get there. What I was so impressed about is there is a fan magazine, or as it's called, a fanzine, that's been in publication since 1980, when I first went to a concert. It was started by a fan and a journalist whose name was Charles R. Cross from Seattle. He named it Backstreets after one of Bruce's great songs on the Born to Run album. And it started as kind of a couple of page, kind of a pamphlet written for Bruce fans, by Bruce fans. And it grew and grew. 
It turned out to be a full-blown magazine with, you know, 30 pages or so. It was sold in record stores around the country. You could buy a subscription for it. It was full color then. It started as this, uh, you know, a Xerox copy pamphlet handed out for free at concerts to fans. And it was written with a good sense of journalism, but also fandom. And I know how that is, too, because I wrote for a Elton John fan magazine called East End Lights for 10 years. And then ultimately became the managing editor of it for a year. And it was a very well-respected fanzine. And it was, it was unabashedly biased, but I also tried to talk about his music in an objective way, too. Not completely just... I always said, I will, when, when Elton does something well, I will talk about him with every flowery adjective in the world. But when there's something that he does is wrong, or he puts out a bad album, or he does something else, I'll be the first one to criticize him. And that's what this Backstreets has done for the last 43 years. It's been pretty well balanced. It certainly is a fan magazine. It's well balanced for being a fan magazine. It's still like 80-20 over the top in terms of loving everything that Bruce has done, maybe even 90-10. But that's what you expect. That's what you want. It's written for fans by fans. It doesn't have journalistic objectivity it's not supposed to but it can be written well and have a journalistic view and still be a little biased or in some cases very biased and there's no question that 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 backstreets was well written it was written from a journalistic standpoint with good writers solid writers but there's no doubt it was written with a huge bias toward Bruce and a huge admiration toward Bruce as a person and Bruce as a musician and artist. And that's what a fanzine is supposed to be. So it doesn't get knocked. And then it grew. And then when the internet came, it became big on the internet. Became If you were a Bruce Springsteen fan, you didn't go to Bruce's website for information. You went to Backstreets.com. They had people going to the concerts, review every concert on the tour with a set list because every set list for the most part was always different. Every show was different. You, then they even had a store. They had places for people to, to swap tickets. It be, Backstreets.com, Backstreets, the, the magazine, you know, transitioned into Backstreets.com as a compliment, and then it really took over. The website really took over. But it was the place, if you were a Springsteen fan, it was the place to go for the most up-to-date information. You went to Backstreets.com. I would check it weekly, especially right after a new album or when a tour was on, especially when a tour was on every day. And it would be about Bruce as well as related projects, people in his band, people that he's that he plays on albums with it was the whole bruce springsteen universe it was well written it was from a fan standpoint it fed into your own fandom and your own enthusiasm and then your own bias so it was great there was a cool um merchandise that they offered insights interviews with with former and current bad members 
It was the information source if you were a Bruce Springsteen fan. If you were a Bruce Springsteen fan, you went to back it, backstreets.com was bookmarked on your computer and you went there regularly. And about 2 weeks ago, when this dynamic pricing things came to pass last summer when the new tour was announced and the tickets finally went on sale in the summer for this February, which when this tour started, February 1st in Tampa, nobody was aware of this dynamic pricing process. And fans were getting online and seeing this, the prices of the tickets go up to $5,000. People were screaming. It was similar to that you know, Taylor Swift fiasco where they shut the things down. The difference was that they didn't shut this down. Springsteen's management, the people were immediately online saying, what's going on? Tickets are $5,000 a piece. What, what, what's going on here? Springsteen's management was quiet for a good week. They didn't stop the sales. They didn't say, wait a minute, this isn't working. We're going to stop it and start over again. No, they let it be. Ticketmaster came out several days later with some lame excuses about, well, the, the big, those $5,000 tickets were only 11% of the of those tickets that were sale the other ones are very reasonably priced but those 11 percent that's where the diehard fans sit they sit toward the front show after show after show they spend money to travel in hotels and airline tickets and 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 and, and rent-a-cars so those 11 percent were the people that have kept bruce springsteen a major entity they're the ones that have been bought every record for the last 40 years and gone on every tour and 20 shows a show. And those are the people that you're supposed to be taken care of. And he didn't. And much to my surprise and shock and respect, when that happened last summer, when those tickets went on sale, the editor of Backstreet's, a guy named Christopher Phillips, and I must say, I, I have written for Backstreet's Magazine, the hard copy cover, in the past. I've had Christopher Phillips on the radio and interviewed him because I respect the work that he's done for the last 20 years. The original founder of the magazine stopped, and Christopher Phillips took over. And he's done an excellent job. And I had great respect for him. The last couple of years, I felt that he was going they were getting a little too chummy with their management but i figured well you know that's only natural i mean he's a fan so who wouldn't want to be able to maybe sell out a little to get access to bruce right that's what it's all about if you're a big fan right so that's why i was even more impressed when on backstreets.com last summer they tweeted and wrote an op-ed on the website saying that there was a crisis in faith, that this pricing was a crisis in faith for the true Springsteen fan, at least for the people, the, the editor of Backstreet's. And, how, and, and I was feeling the same thing. And I, was, I thought it validated my feelings because I was like, okay, wait a minute. I thought I was maybe going overboard and taking this too seriously. But no, but here's someone else who's also a diehard fan like me and he's feeling the betrayal. So I knew I wasn't alone, and I knew my feelings were valid. And I could sense over the last several months that there was a less enthusiasm 
when you'd go on the website on a daily basis, especially with the idea of a tour coming up, and then Bruce just had a new album come out in the fall, but I didn't sense the same excitement and the same exuberance of a new album and a new tour. I mean, Bruce hasn't toured with the E Street Band since 2017, but I, I was sensing, I wasn't reading and feeling the same kind of of uh, energy coming out of Backstreets.com that in the past, a new album and then a new tour announced. This was their Super Bowl. But I wasn't sensing it, but I thought, well, maybe, you know, I'm just reading into it myself because I'm a little disappointed and disillusioned by by some of Springsteen's actions over the last couple of years. And then I, I logged on about two weeks ago and I started reading this letter to the the fans from Christopher Phillips from the editors at Backstreets and he said that backstreets.com is coming to an end and he cited this ticket fiasco this high pricing as the major reason and the impetus for him losing his enthusiasm as well as the ability to cover, they used to cover, they, you know, they would have either he would be going to many shows or people around the country would be going to shows and writing. And he said, we could not with the price, you know, they weren't getting free tickets. They were, these were fans who were buying tickets and they were sitting in those great seats in the front. They couldn't afford $3,000 seats for multiple shows anymore. So he said, not only, Basically, to summarize, not only did this dynamic pricing in general feel like a crisis in faith, feel like a betrayal to the the bond that Springsteen had had built with his fans and his most loyal fans for the last 40, 50 years, but from the work that the that that the website was known for of doing this exhaustive coverage of every show and having people at every show doing reviews and 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 giving a, a rundown of the show and things behind the scenes and and talking to fans before and tailgating and the new set list and when was the last time they did this song and all this minutia which is what made backstreet such a great resource for for diehard fans they said we you know with this with with the price now, we can't. We there's no way we can go to multiple shows. We can't afford this. We're not getting free tickets. So the betrayal of the dynamic pricing itself was an impetus, and then the realities of it of what it would cost to do it, and the overall disillusionment that Bruce Springsteen. I don't even know what the word would be. Inflicted, and I think that's the right word, inflicted on his most loyal fans, really cut to the heart for many of us. I never in my wildest dreams thought that Backstreets.com would would close and shut down because of that. But I'll tell you, 
I have great respect for Christopher Phillips and for the editors and everybody running that thing. Because unlike Springsteen, they stuck to their feelings. They stuck to their their beliefs. So much so that they said, we've been betrayed and we can't go on anymore. And that's the way I've been feeling. There's no question at this point with a Bruce Springsteen show in Milwaukee only a couple weeks away, any other time I would already have tickets in hand months ago. I still don't have them. I still don't know whether I'm going. And if I don't go to the show in Milwaukee, then I'm not going to probably go to any of them because I'm not going to go to Wrigley Field. I've already decided that. And that would be the first tour that I've missed of Bruce Springsteen's in 43 years. So that is a big deal. But I'm having that same crisis of faith, that same sense of betrayal that the editors of Backstreet's are feeling too. Now they said, look, we are still, and I feel the same way too, we're still fans. We don't hate Bruce. We still love his music and love his performances. I'm sure they're going to go to a show or two or more. But they just didn't feel the same energy and excitement and commitment and dedication that they felt in the past because of this betrayal because they felt that they were always getting that same energy and excitement and dedication and commitment from Bruce coming back to them that they felt it was worth giving to him. And that's the way I felt. So I don't know whether I'm going to go to see Bruce Springsteen on March 7th in Milwaukee. And after seeing that, not only did Backstreet's come out against Bruce, which it never does on anything, because it's a fan magazine and and it's diehard fans. So when they came out with this, it's a crisis in faith, that was a shock to read because I never thought they'd say anything that negative about him. But six months after that, to have made such a momentous decision, and I'm sure Bruce Springsteen has heard about it and knows about it because his management used to do things and they were cooperative with Backstreet's. So I'm sure he's heard that Backstreets.com, which was his most loyal, which, which was a, a meeting ground for his most loyal fans, his most longtime obsessive cult-like fans, felt betrayed by him. So much so that they are stopping the website, putting an end to it. Because of that betrayal. Wow, that's a message. That sends a message. And I think it's a message that is worth sending. I'm wondering if I'm going to... I mean, in my little way, by not going, Bruce doesn't know or care, right? But I'll know. And even if I go to this one... If I do go to this one show, that'll be it. And I might never go see Bruce Springsteen with the E Street Band again. I don't know. As I said, I'm still a fan of his music. I'm still a great admirer of his um, live performance, and I'm still addicted to it. 
So it's not out of the realm that I would go, but certainly my enthusiasm for going has been affected here. But me boycotting it doesn't mean anything. But Backstreets.com and Backstreets Magazine ceasing to exist because of the betrayal that it felt and feels by what Bruce has done with this dynamic ticketing for his tour, boy, that sends a message. And I think Bruce has received it. I hope he has. At the very least, I don't know what the ticket pricing process is going to be when the, the next batch of tickets go on sale for these outdoor tour, these shows in, in Wrigley Field and beyond into the, into the end of this year. If they're smart, they will get rid of it. But for many of us, for me, and obviously for the, some of the biggest diehard fans like Christopher Phillips and those behind Backstreets.com, the damage has been done. The betrayal is real. It's hurtful, it's deep, and it's long-lasting. So I give Backstreets.com a huge dose of respect and a huge dose of admiration for, for holding on to its ideals and not compromising like Springsteen did and making the ultimate decision and the ultimate sacrifice to stop doing something that they love doing and i'll be honest this tour has been going on now for several weeks and i have less of an of a enthusiasm and an excitement for it because i'm not seeing photos and i'm not reading reviews by fans with the set lists of every show like i have because there's been what maybe five or six or seven shows so far 10 shows 15 shows i would have been reading about those the day after and getting excited to see a show and now that tour is going on and it's just kind of happening i see some little clips and things like that on facebook every so often but i'm not getting that daily dose and so my own enthusiasm My own excitement is lessened because I don't have backstreets there to give me that that daily dose of information, that daily dose of excitement to build my own anticipation and share in that fandom, which is such which which was which was such a part of the Bruce Springsteen experience. Now he feels like a hired gun. It feels like he's just a performer out there doing it for a buck. And at this point in his career, he doesn't need the money. And at this point in his career, he should have been doing just the opposite. He should have been rewarding his most loyal fans as his career begins to slow down, as he reaches his mid-70s. And there are no guarantees, regardless of what kind of health or what kind of shape anybody's in. When you get into your 70s, who knows? He just sold his his um, his catalog, as I said, for $500 million. That's a half a billion dollars on top of what he's already got. For this tour, he should have rewarded his fans. 
He shouldn't exploit. He shouldn't have exploited them, which is what he did. He betrayed them. He treated them like patrons, not friends, not family, not a community, but like consumers. It was a a boss betrayal. I'll let you know if I go. I'm still on the fence. I myself can't believe I don't have tickets yet, which lends me to believe that I just might not go. The question is, do I have the guts that Backstreets.com did? I'll let you know in March. And so ends another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. We are there. And don't forget to tell your friends, tell your family, tell anybody who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic, and it should be theirs too. Your loyalty and devotion is much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed episode number 352. I'm Jim Toronto. I'm here on business. I'm only here for fun. You've been listening to Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. From the end of the web to your screen.